Welcome to the Raising Your Game podcast, where I bring to you the stories, insights, and ideas from those in the world of sport to help you build a stronger mind, more resilient body, and healthier life. Whether you're an up-and-coming athlete in the making or a seasoned professional, this show promises to give you something that you can use for positive change and help you in raising your game. This episode is brought to you by Sport Yogi, the app for athletes to build the connection between body and mind. Using methods such as yoga, mindfulness, mobility training, breathing exercises, and much more, the Sport Yogi app will help you at becoming a better athlete every day. To sign up now to your free account, head over to www.sportyogi.com or head over to the iOS or Android stores where you can download the Sport Yogi app completely free today. If you're part of a team, club, or school program, then Sport Yogi has a discounted offer that brings the Sport Yogi app to your squads and provides the boost in well-being and performance that you could be looking for. For teams and clubs, head over to sportyogi.com forward slash teams. And for schools, head over to sportyogi.com forward slash schools. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Lewis Hatchett, and in this episode, I speak with Francis Horton, five-time, yes, five-time Olympian and the first British female rower to compete in five Olympic Games. I was fortunate to have met Francis through an athlete mentoring program that we both worked on a couple of years ago, but you're in for a treat with this episode. Francis talks about her lessons from her career that span two decades. From managing the physical and mental tolls of Olympic rowing to how a change of mindset can free you up in your sport and life, setting your goals, verbalizing them, as well as working as a team with a range of different personalities. There is so much covered in this episode. I was blown away by it. All the stories and lessons she has put in her own book, Learnings from Five Olympic Games. Like I said, this episode has a lot. So grab a pen and paper if you want to take notes. And without any hesitation, I give you Francis Horton. Enjoy. Francis, thank you so much for for jumping on onto this call. Um, we're talking about just quickly, sort of how we met. We met at uh, through a mentoring program, True Athlete Project. So, kind of shout out to them for first off. But uh, I remember the last time we were actually together, we were doing an emotional intelligence training, weren't we? We were doing that 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 day yeah, of, of emotional intelligence yeah. training, which was a uh, great fun. Um, but how how have things been? Like we were talking about you through the pandemic. And uh, you've actually had not too bad a time through the yeah, pandemic. Yeah, it's, it's true. I, I, some, I sometimes feel really bad saying it, but yeah, I did. Uh, I was lucky. My mum lives in Oxford with a with a really nice garden, and I took the decision to go there at the beginning of the of the first lockdown back in March last year. And you know what? It was. I feel really fortunate that I've had that period of time to spend with her and. Although it was originally on the pretense that I was going to keep her company, I, you know, it was really good for me as well. So yeah. I was able to carry on working from home, which I do anyway. Um, and yeah, it's been so tough for so many people and I feel like one of the lucky ones. I feel that's been like a little bit of a theme with the pandemic. Some people have either found that space where they, they, they have really struggled and I think it t- tends to depend on the personality of the individual as well. And 
and also there's people that have come out of it that that have learned loads like they've done really well out of it it's succeeded it's such a tough thing to know i think it's almost down to the personality of the the individual that's whether this whole world that we're living in suits your personality or it doesn't it's just doesn't yeah, select I mean, the, the ability to adapt to change like how you see change and whether that's something that you're like okay i need to adapt to this or please don't change like what mm. your instinctive response to it is and then of course there's loads of stuff that's outside of all of our controls isn't it like what happens with your job and whether that's been stable or not um so yeah it just it's been m- immense extremes for people mm. um so yeah interesting. this is it's real tough um let's let's go straight into to your career like a career that spanned 20 years in in olympic sport that is the first british woman to to do that and and i in rowing in, 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 rowing, in rowing yeah in rowing good five games yeah yeah which is again just insane when you think about it and we'll get onto the commitment and what it takes to go through that but for you where did it start like and i've never heard you talk about this and um but where did it really start for you where was the initial love of rowing and who introduced you to it and how did it come about Right, yeah. So I really wasn't a sporty child. Like if I did long jump, I, there were many times I did not make the sand pits. You know, I still landed on that bit of tarmac. Um, and swimming, you know, I mean, I tried, but it was, you know, it was it was not sinking. That's about as much as I can say about it. Um, but my sister, my elder sister, was really sporty. Uh, I don't know where it came from because no one in my family is sporty. Um, and every time I turned up to PE, people would say, oh, this is so exciting because you're even taller than her. You're going to be even better than her at all these different sports. And I was absolutely useless. And I just got so fed up with being a disappointment that I thought I'm going to try the only thing she hasn't taken her hand to. Um, and that was rowing. Um, I was really fortunate that there was a, a river on the, at the bottom of my well near my school and so that's where I tried rowing for the first time and I really loved it it was um for me it's a I mean I am an introvert and it was a place where I could go out and be in my own world on the water like push off from shore be lost in my own thoughts Hmm. and then actually because then I was really enjoying it I then had something to chat to people about who also enjoyed it in their own little world and so sport sort of became this vehicle for conversation and you know social interaction which I didn't really have before and gradually I then started rowing in teams rather than on my own and I just got a lot of energy from it that's what I really really loved about it so that's interesting that you so you started on your own so did you um and like almost said it was like your space sounds like a very um, mindful thing to do to get out and just have your time away and and go and um, practice or or just enjoy it for the sake of it was there a tipping point for you where it went from that enjoyment to okay now I can compete in this um yeah so I like I was really enjoying it and I was like putting my hand to it and I think because I've been brought up in a very sort of disciplined environment my, my dad was a teacher and it was all about being about structure and you know you, you do the do the plan each day um, and I could see that I was getting better. And then I watched the Atlanta Olympics. So I would have been 16 um, at the time. Like I watched 1992 and I thought it was just such an amazing spectacle, loved mm. it. But 1996, that was when I, you know, I had started rowing. I sort of knew some of the people that were involved. I identified with them. 
And one of the people that was at the Atlanta Games came back and gave a talk at my rowing club. And I just thought it would be amazing to do what he had done. And that's when I actually took a piece of card and I wrote on the back of it, I vow to do everything I possibly can to get to Sydney 2000. Um, and I signed it and then I made someone else come over that from nearby and said, oh, will you kind of witness it and sign it as well? And wow. so that was, so I made this like really clear commitment that that was what I was going to put my mind to. And I look back now and I think, you know, what about all the other stuff? What about all the distractions? And you have school and all these other things. But I just had this really clear drive in my mind. I'd seen Atlanta I could relate to the people that were doing it. It looked like the most incredible thing to be in part, a part of. And I and I knew in my mind that Sydney was going to be special. So it wasn't about I want to become an Olympian one day and I'll gradually get there. I had this sense of urgency because, I don't know, you, you spent a lot of time yourself in Australia and it's like the sporty place mm. and feels really colourful and I knew it would be a real celebration. So I thought, put the accelerators on, like a at the time I said, right, I'm still at school and doing my A-levels and then I'll be at university and my, my work is my priority and I'll fit as much training as I can around it, but this is the goal to try and get to Sydney. Wow, yes. I, that's, um, that commitment that you've made, like it's almost like, a, well, it's a contract. You wrote a contract. <laughs> you physically yeah. wrote a contract out. I think that's so important for athletes, especially at a young age, because I think back to when I started out, I had... I had said there was a moment in my career and part of my journey to becoming a pro was like I sat at, I was at a dinner table with my parents and I like slammed my fists on the table and was like, that's it, I'm going to be a professional cricketer. And that was my, again, verbal contract to them. And I think it's super important to do that. I think if, you, if you're going to try and go at something, you need to have witnesses. You have to have someone there, one for the accountability, but again kind of like your ego and your pride sits on it then and it's like i've said that i want to do this and this is something that i've you've heard me say and more to yourself than anything like you've you you can think about it but once you verbalize it it becomes real if you don't verbalize it if you don't make a physical statement it doesn't become real so making it real and making it whether like you do what you did writing it down or saying to someone it, it has to become real from then yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, and I can look back now and I can see times, you know, re in, re all training, but rowing training is is really hard. It's, you know, three sessions a day, six days a week, you know, one, you know, one Sunday off a month, it's full on. And I remember times when I was so tired, I could barely, you know, hold my knife and fork and my hands were blistered and everything. But this vow, when 99% when of me thought I can't do this anymore, this niggle of this really clearly articulated vow that I'd made to myself, that was the 1% that kept putting the keys in the ignition. Mm. And so I just couldn't, no matter how much was pulling me in the other direction, I wouldn't, I wouldn't break that last 1%. I just kept putting the keys in the ignition. Yeah. When you started off, you said like, again, you were rowing on your own and then you joined a team. Did you, did, was there ever a moment where you thought, right, I want to be on my own or teams or, or you got selected into teams, you were identified as better in teams. What was that sort of journey and process? Um, yeah, I spent a lot of my career wanting to be on my own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it 
only after a while that I realized, you know, you do get quite a lot out of being with other people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the performance is way more enjoyable. And as much as your ego wants to get all the credit and be the only one in it, actually, do you really enjoy it? Because Mm -hmm. you, you, on the everyday, when you look at the everyday of it, you're, what you're actually showing is quite a lot of stress about this. You know, you're carrying, you're putting so much pressure on yourself. Um, And so the teams, I mean, it's inevitable in rowing, there's, there's sort of one slot for one person and then there's crews of two and four and eight. Um, and early on, when I was put in teams, it, you know, it seemed to work. Um, I am a bit of a taskmaster and it took me a while over the sort of 20 years to work out it's it's a lot better to work with people and to enjoy the process of creating something together rather yeah. than saying, this is how it should be done. Come on, everyone, you know. Um but when I look back now, that is definitely what I value the most um, is the, the experiences, the stories that, you know, even the terrible races, but being able to laugh about it. Yeah. And you kind of touched on how tiring the training is. Just run us through what a training week might look. And, and I understand, especially with your career, it would have changed over time uh, with sports science and whether it's nutrition and training methods. And I'm sure that 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 evolved. But was there what would a sort of program and routine look like for for you and and the team because i think that is important as well like even sharing that training just if you get to in a competition i've only played a team sport and that for me is when you've put all that training in you can lean on people especially when you don't feel like it um and you don't feel up for the event through whatever may be happening but that training is a is a big part of your bonding and commitment so what was your routine looking like yeah, you're right. I mean, sharing that those training days, going through that together is a huge part of the togetherness of the team for us anyway, because we saw each other exhausted, you know, kind of lying down in the shower, just, you know, so exhausted, you know, I'd rather just sit down than stand up. And going through those experiences together, that is when, you know, if you're in the middle of the race, and I always say the ultimate team is when you can't put another stroke for yourself, but you right. can for those around you. So if you're in the middle of of the race, your legs are screaming, really, hands up, I would walk away from this right now, but I wouldn't walk away from my teammates right now. And I would put another one in for them because you know what you've all been through. Um, And what it was typically, and amazingly, you know, you say it probably changed over time, but it didn't change that much. Rowing is still fairly archaic. It's, It's a whole load of miles and a whole load of technique to get right. Um, and then a bit of sharpening up when you approach a race. How you fit that jigsaw together does change from coach to coach, but essentially there are some big ticket items that just have to be done. Um, And so typically it would be three sessions uh, on a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and that would be one really long endurance session. So say an hour and 45 to two hours out on the water, at a kind of pace where you're challenged, but you're not out of breath. So that's like a steady state session. Your second session would be a lot harder. So you'd have efforts of say, repeated efforts of eight minutes or 20 minutes or half an hour as hard as you possibly can. And then your third session would be lifting weights. And then on the Wednesday, Saturday, there would be two sessions and that hard session would be even harder. Mm. And then we'd have one Sunday off a month. 
Um, and as I say, it hasn't really changed in the essence that rowing needs loads of volume. You need to fit in as many technical sessions as you can or work on your technique whilst doing all this physical training whilst you can. And essentially, I mean, I know everyone's got different views on nutrition, but the way I saw it by the time I got to the end of my career is just keep it really, really simple. Mm. Keep it, you know, real food and recovery, recovery and sleep to get through it. Just repair, make it as easy for your body as possible. And what's, what part of the body was pretty much taking the punishing the most? Um, I, I mean, I'd heard of backs really do get a lot of a lot of work in. When I had my own back issues, I got to go see a specialist that I think was linked with Team Team GB's rowing rowing squad, and they were like, "Yeah, discs in backs. That's sort of what just gets ruined." Is that is that about fair? Yeah, that's about fair. Backs because it's just the compression and. We don't. We do have much stronger cores now. That's probably the one big shift that's happened over the last twenty years is identifying that the core really needs to be strong to support the back. Um, other than that, a few broken ribs, fractured ribs, that kind of thing. Where you, again, you're not. You don't haven't kind of got the scaffolding in place to take the strain if you haven't quite got the right technique. Were you in, uh, implementing sort of many recovery types of? Tr- There's so many different recovery tools out there right now. Was there anything that you found worked really well for you? Because if you're having to do all of that volume, recovery is going to be a huge part of that and getting up to go again and put in a good technical session without losing your technique, I imagine. And um, was there something that you found was a good a, a good sort of routine or, or, or technique method you had? Yeah, sleep. Yeah, so, I mean, there's nothing um, beats that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, number one, I would write down every morning how much sleep I'd had in the previous 24 hours. And the yeah. one thing I came to absolutely insist on was that I had this like a chunk of time in the middle of the day where I could go to sleep. So mm. whether that be half an hour, that was brilliant, you know, and I would, you know, I would travel home to get this half an hour where I could just shut down. And you ask like, what part of your body takes the biggest beating physically? Yes, it's the back, but really it's, it's the brain mentally mm-hmm. because we're constantly, well, we're constantly under pressure. So we've got that, um, stress that we're carrying all the time and we're constantly in a competitive environment but also also trying to constantly improve technically so the cognitive load is huge and I always function so much better when I could have this pause point in the like in the middle of the day sort of download reset and go again and then really try and get um, you know a good nine hours sleep at night and what I found was that if I wrote down every day how much I'd got and I need I knew I needed like nine and a half preferably 10 hours in wow. a 24 hour cycle again as you talked about with that vow that I made about going to Sydney if you write it down you hold yourself accountable to it mm. um, so for me just sleep was the number one thing and you you talk about the the environment the pressured environment you're in I mean I read Redgrave's book and he spoke about I can't remember the name of the the coach very famous rowing coach Jan Jürgen Grobler Jürgen that's it Jürgen Grobler and he was talking about the intensity at which that training session were you ever associated with him in training or so Jürgen coached the men um, right. he was a presence he was always around um, and you always if he was standing behind you on the rowing machine thought Better, better put it out today um but he um, i really wish i'd had the opportunity to be coached by him um but unfortunately not yeah so your environment and that that pressure was there a lot of people sort of nipping at your heels when you were at the top and um yeah i, I mean how many rowers are in a squad sort of thing with obviously yeah. there's up to eight in a boat so 
Yeah, up to eight in a boat, but from from when you come back from the Olympics or the World Championships and the season, training season starts in September, October, until April the following year, you train in singles on your own. Wow. And you'll be going around this lake, the train, national training base is in Caversham near Reading. And you, you're not supposed to be racing, but we're all competitive people. So even in that steady session every morning, you're really conscious if someone's moving faster than you. Um, and you're out there and, you know, in that second session I talked about where we do these efforts, a ranking sheet comes out, you know, every day and there's a list and you can see where you are on this list. And alongside your name, not only are you ranked, but your time is compared not only to world record pace, but we have this target time for every boat class, which is beyond world record pace. Right. So, I mean, even like, say, for example, on training camp, you get up in the morning, your pee is tested to see if you're hydrated enough. Yep. Your blood is tested to see how recovered you are and how much of your own body you're breaking down <laughs> in its effort wow. to recover. You go out on the water, you're competing against each other, and then you get the sheet at lunchtime <laughs> to tell you where you are compared to beyond world record pace. Yeah. So what, pretty was, intense. What, what was it like as you sort of going through your career and then you probably go from junior to senior uh, member of that squad was there was there a moment where you're kind of you're looking at it going oh is the young guns are trying to gun it out and the, the wisdom of what I know now is is no I can hold back a little bit was there any of that going on um I think I was always really conscious when the new guys came in like number one I I really loved it because they had these fresh eyes they weren't mm. kind of jaded and exhausted like I was <laughs> and if we ever had a sub come into a crew you know if someone was injured I was always so keen to hear their point of view because I really think the fresh eyes are so valuable if you're in a repetitive environment um and then when the new guys were coming up it always was a bit galling that the young the young ones, you just can't, you can't help but improve because you're you're growing, you're physically new to this level of training. And you can see, you know, they're getting personal bests all the time. And, you know, some of us who've been around for a while, it's like, mm, my last personal best was about five years ago. But you've just got to adapt your, your, the way that you see it and think, you know what, I'm, you know, I'm at a level now where I'm not actually seeking that type of improvement. Mm. I'm at a good enough level physically, other than, power and other than technique even at that point what can i contribute around the edges and that's where the little bits come from and that's where you can see your own value mm. and I, and you're i'm sure the squad obviously would have rotated quite a bit so how did you adapt to having those new members in and again this was something i learned from reading redgrove's book about understanding that there's certain types of personalities and and you always think of rowing so physical like so it is so physical so there has to be an element of the makeup of you as a, a human being, You're fairly tall. So there's there's everyone's either got that lever, that leverage. But then yeah. the way Redgrave explained it, the difference between like Cracknell Pinson himself and like one's heart, one's a pure engine, one's just going to literally kill himself and, until he's, he's fallen off the boat. Was there, how do you manage those personalities? And did you have similar types and... And were you almost like the the one that's shepherding them? And yeah, what, what was that like, really? Yeah, it's such a good question. And actually, I write about this a lot in my book, this complete, this challenge of all these different um, personalities. Originally, or, you know, early on in my career, I thought, right, I've been 
successful in inverted mm. commas i've won world championships so therefore i'm going to tell everyone else this is how we did it and we should all be carbon copies of what i see a champion does this is how we behave this is how we row this is how we train these are the targets we need to meet this is what we need to do and after a while <laughs> i realized that i was very frustrated everyone else was having pretty much a terrible time because if you set really high standards for everyone around you and you and you're effectively dragging them along or pushing them up from behind it's really stifling. It's it's not enjoyable. And you're not mm. giving them the opportunity to show what they can do as a completely different version of a of a human and, and an athlete. And so after a while, I thankfully clocked this <laughs> and I saw it really differently. So in my head, I went from carbon copy to what can we create together as this mix of really different individuals? Mm. And it's amazing and wonderful that we're different because that will mean that we have um like a jigsaw that we can fit together a jigsaw of strengths and we won't have blind spots and the more that we can talk about ourselves and our preferences and our strengths and our fears if there is anything that we haven't got covered then at least we're talking about it and we can make sure that we do take steps to cover any weaknesses but certainly in that last boat in rio that was what made it absolutely like shine and it was an amazing performance and, a, and wonderful to be a part of because we were a mix of different individuals and we all gave each other space to be the 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 strongest expression of themselves did did you find that the cultures sort of from when you started to when you finished had had adapted and and changed with the coaching staff um encouraging that i mean in a previous podcast that i've had was with uh, john lewis the elite bowling coach for for england and he was talking about how open and vulnerable the senior players were and how that gave the space for the young players to talk about their own insecurities their worries also make it seem like you've got james anderson and stuart broad talking about their vulnerabilities their worries and it makes them human and that's a that's a huge thing to have but also I recognize that in my sport 20 years ago, that would never have happened. Like people would be like, I'm fine and just get on with it. Was that similar in rowing? Yeah, absolutely. So early on, it was all about, you know, yeah, as you say, I'm really strong. And, you know, you try, you know, even even though we might end up as teammates, I, you know, I wouldn't have shown you any weakness. I would just, and I probably would have had the view that I wanted you to feel when you rode with me, that you were with someone really strong. Mm. Not necessarily that I just didn't want to admit that I was struggling. Like I, in a sense, you train yourself so that in the middle of the race, your thoughts are, I am strong, rather mm. than this is, this is the last place I want to be and I want to run away. So it's understandable why we were in that place. But now, as you say, things absolutely have changed in rowing as well. And I think what also helped in my last team in Rio was that we weren't sort of the lead boat. We were sort of the <laughs> the second ranked team. And so by, by default, our egos had to be slightly put to one side as well. Mm. Um, and I always found that when I was in a crew with someone, initially people would not want to sort of share openly about that as you say their vulnerabilities or what they found worked or you know because they'd always say well I'm not sure if we'll be in a team together next year it might all change 
Um, but what I found was, actually, if you share something with me, it doesn't make you weaker. It makes us stronger. Mm. Um, and so the teams, and actually, if you tell me something that, you know, that you've got a vulnerability, I'm not going to go and use it against you the following year because I don't fully understand it. And you would have evolved and it won't be the same as it was last year. So I think we got over this fear of openness and, and instead of it being something that detracts from strength and performance mm. to something that actually these are layers of stitching that bring us together. And I, and I see it like a zip. So, you know, if we're all um, alongside each other, if I've got uh, something that I've, I'm struggling with, someone can come in and fill that with their strength and layer mm. by layer by layer, we become stronger and stronger and stronger. Yeah, that's that's such a great point. Again, for the for the younger athletes probably coming in to to see that. But I also feel some people may feel that there's a, an element of oh, saying it's softness. I don't know, and 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 that can be. I think there has to be that beautiful blend of accountability and non negotiables, and then that space and that time to to open up and that's why sport in my eyes is such a great learner for life and in general is that you you can be hardened and and battle tough but then you can also you do have to have that recovery that openness to to allow that growth to happen from the the almost sprint of effort that you're giving that allows you to to grow otherwise you're just going to be there'll be an there'll be a time when it you'll crack and that can manifest in itself in any different ways and there's obviously there's stories of athletes that, that kind of crack later on in life and, and they, they fall back. But I'm, I'm hopeful that athletes nowadays are, are kind of understanding that. And it's important that in that spectrum, you don't shift too far one way, but also you don't shift too far the other and go too soft and, and then forget that there's that accountability and that work and that effort. Um, is, there, is there almost something that you find with a rowing uh, that there is non-negotiable like you need to be this type of person or or have this in order to to achieve success in it well i've seen so many different personalities and road with such different people so i i don't think anything that you have or don't have is a like a definitive barrier mm. but the the common factors that i've seen across the people that i've seen really maximize their potential and seize the opportunity that they have as a period of time in their life to, to do sport. I think that the perseverance just each and every day, just like failure on repeat mm. and to keep getting themselves up and back again. And for me, there wasn't a correlation between talent and success. Of course, talented people have this, you know, they have a platform and they have an opportunity, but it's all the other stuff that, that people do as habits that chip, 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 get them to where they want to get to. And, you know, having an instinctive response under pressure of that didn't go right, but I'm going to move from judging myself for not getting it right to what am I going to do about it? Mm. I think that was the difference in the athletes that actually made, actually got there or made the most of what they had. And I see it now as like, those ones they moved quickest from judgment to action. The ones that sort of doubted, weren't quite sure, no matter how talented they were, they would stay in that space that was like, oh, I got it wrong, or why am I getting it wrong? Or 
such and such wasn't right or I don't understand or I don't know if I believe in myself, that little bit took a really long time to haul themselves out of. Whereas the ones that got it or the ones that the common denominator in those successful ones, I mean, that was like a five-minute conversation with self. Yeah. Didn't go right. Okay, this, this, and this didn't go right. Total honesty. What am I going to do? Action. Yeah. That seems a very common theme with a lot of people I've spoken to that they they say that failure, not an option. Like that has to happen. Like if you're running away from that, you're you're missing a huge opportunity and that speed at which you get over it that or learn from it and and then move on the yeah. more you dwell on it the more it's just going to 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 pull you down obviously yeah. your career spanning over the the five olympic games was there a moment of self doubt was there a moment where you felt okay i feel like i'm i've done enough now or what was the thing that just kept you motivated to to keep going um yeah so self doubt every day yeah <laughs> But I did have this thing. Um, so I fundamentally believed in myself and I believed it was possible that I could achieve what I dreamed of achieving. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it would happen, but I believed it could happen. I think that's a really important difference. So whenever I thought I really can't carry on, there was also this thing in the back of my mind that said, but are you, I still believe you could do it. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's going to happen but I still believe you could. Um, and in 2014, actually, when I, I'd come back from sort of Beijing where we didn't win and there was a lot of expectation on us to win, sort of pieced myself back together, went to London. It wasn't a great games for me and I knew going into it wasn't going to be a great games. And I was still trying to push, push, push. I was frustrated that I hadn't won yet. But um, back when I uh returned from sydney although my original plan was only to go to one olympics um just to leave it there and go off and get a proper job i'd actually made this second vow to myself um in september 2000 where i said i want to be the first british woman to go to five olympic games in Rome. Wow. and so again this was this thing that just kept getting me up and kept getting me going and 2014 i really was burnt out i was I can see now it was the physical manifestations of emotional stress. My my back went, my had a broken rib. We had no idea how I'd broken it. I was absolutely exhausted. I remember walking down the road and I would close, I would look ahead and see that like there wasn't many obstacles and clock where the lampposts were and just close my eyes and just think, I'll just keep on walking and that's like another moment of rest. Um, so I was I was gone. <laughs> wow. And I just thought there is no way I can carry on in the mindset that I was in of push, 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 wanting to win. And I said, right, I've got to change the way I think about this. And that's when I uh, I changed my goal from winning gold to I want to stand on the podium with my arms around my teammates. And what I'm ultimately aiming for is a feeling of joy, mm. not relief that it's over. Um, and sorry, I've forgotten your original question, but I've got <laughs> explaining how things sort of changed. Yeah, well, um, I think that's, did Did you achieve that? Did you, yeah, did you, so did this, you feel that? Yeah, so changing my mindset like this, it was amazing because it was like this hose pipe of stress. I had this, I was carrying so much tension. I was basically all this time up until 2014 trying to fulfill other people's expectation of what I should be able to achieve. Hmm. And it wasn't until I let go of that. And I said, I do this for my own reasons. And you know what, although I believe I could win, I 
don't have to win. Like, it's okay if I don't. still want to, I still believe I can, but it is okay mm. if I don't. The world will not stop spinning. It's okay. Um, and so when I sort of changed how I, you know, and I, how I defined it, and again, I wrote it down to stand on the Olympic podium with my arms around my teammates and feel joy, not relief. I realized that for that moment to be genuine and to stand there and to look each other in the eye and to know my teammates and to be able to say, we did this together, we do this for different reasons or we're different people or whatever, but we totally did this together and it's something that we created and we're really proud of it. That To have that feeling, I needed to really understand them and to be with them and to be really engaged every single day. It wasn't a case of just deciding to get on board and then you know jumping for joy when we all did it on the last day. We had to really understand and know each other and be there for each other. And so I really changed the way I approached every day instead of every day being like, guys, we've got to get this speed to looking and understanding each other so that I could hopefully maybe guide. I, I'd say now that I changed from being a dictator to an energy director. Right. And I feel like I kind of took myself out of the equation and I said, you know, if this is possible, it's not all about me, it's about us, and it's about what can we create, and then going to my final games and just offering that. It's not really competing against anyone else, we're just gonna go and we're gonna offer that. And it was so unifying, um, and as a team, we really, really enjoyed the experience. And you know, we came out and we did stand on the podium, and we it was a moment of absolute joy, and I'm so glad that I did change my mindset deliberately like that because there was a moment in the final where we were coming last and I thought, oh my goodness, this is all my fault because I've come away from this winning mentality. And then two minutes later, we're just coming, we were actually coming back on the Olympic champions. We're rowing down as a chance we could go through and actually win the Olympics. We didn't, we won a silver medal. But I remember in that moment thinking, this changing my mindset has made me faster than I ever thought would be possible because there is no way we would be holding together under pressure like this if we weren't unified and really trusting each other and really proud of what we've created as a team and it's what brought us through so it was more enjoyable this change of mindset and it was faster. That is a fascinating little moment you're talking about there because that whole focus and and vision on a goal of an extrinsic uh, medal, literally, and that extrinsic goal that you're focusing on. But everything you're talking about is going intrinsic and you're thinking about an identity of who I want to be. I think that's really valuable. I think that's so valuable for people because almost if you're looking at extrinsic value, you can only really be let down if you don't achieve it. But if you have that intrinsic, whether you came last or whether you got the silver, you have looked at yourself and gone, right, well, I'm I'm valuing myself and my effort through who I am. And that's a really, really big point for, for anyone. Yeah, and this is why I really felt um, like I really need, really wanted to share this story because I deliberately changed the way I thought and I did write it down and I actioned it before the event it's not now I'm looking back and I'm saying oh it's okay I won silver because I really enjoyed it this is what I did before 
it all happened and this is how it panned out. And I think just as you've really clearly articulated, the difference was I I made my goal how I wanted to feel, mm. not the medal I wanted to hold. And I and I, when I'm talking to people, I always say that we, all of us, everyone, everyone that I meet every single day is working really hard. I mean, there's so much going on in our lives. It's it's hard just to get through each day, I think, without, you know, kind of completely losing the plot. What makes the hard work worth it? And for me, it's how I feel. Mm. And realising that and actually then you know, articulating and holding myself to it and making sure that, because I was then going back, you know, I, I built myself up after this burnout, went back into this competitive environment that I described earlier. And I had to keep I was, I was determined to hold on to this new mindset. It's not all about winning and it's about some softer stuff, but very important and stuff I really, really believe in. But every everyone around me and the environment is all about winning. So holding on to that was really challenging. But there are a few things that made me, again, sort of vow to myself that I wouldn't cross back over the line of just win. Especially when you're in a team as well, where there's probably other agendas everyone's got other agendas and they they want to achieve that goal whether they're verbalizing it or internally verbalizing it to themselves uh but to kind of hold true to what you want to do that's knowing that knowing that you can still put in a performance knowing that you can still be the athlete that you you want i think that's probably a misconception that a lot of people have that if you change that in that mindset if you if you if i think more intrinsically and internal of what who I want to be and and what you're talking about is you're taking pride in the identity that you you had and yeah. and that even makes me really think about who I was when I was playing and 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 I think and I'm not almost ashamed to say it that I take pride in what how I went about what I did I'm hugely proud of the person I became I may not have won massive amounts of trophies or or played for played for my country or won a world cup or whatever it is but I'm hugely proud of the person that I am and some of the traits that I have through how I went about what I did because I almost said to myself, this is who I'm going to be. And that just that story just rings so true. And I think if there's anything that people can take out of that, that is, that is being able to, to not worry that the, the external stuff is almost a byproduct and, and will come if you kind of trust that process of, of being the person that you you want to be so that if you don't achieve it you're still super proud of who you are and and there's more to life outside of sport now as you start to transition out and you you whether you're an amateur or an olympian like there's a moment where you put down you put down your rowing kit you put down your cricket kit you put down your golf clubs whatever it is that you're doing and you you are left with who you are yeah, absolutely. And I just think, you know, that is okay to do stuff against the grain or to think differently. It is okay. And if it feels more powerful to yourself, even more so. And like, listen, li like, listen to ourselves. If it feels right, mm. that is okay. And as I say, for me, it felt like a hose pipe of stress, untwisted, and then the energy just flowed freely. And I didn't get injured again from that moment until after I retired. And so I think that says a lot about the effect of carrying stress or doing things that are not right for ourselves and our 
like our souls, how, how mm. we really function. Um, and so to listen to ourselves. Yeah. Did, was there any, was there like a book or a, a person, a documentary that you, you'd listened to that maybe triggered this or? Um, I think there are loads of different pieces of a jigsaw that, you know, some were immediate, some sort of took time to drop and um, different experiences. I mean, I remember at one point I went to go and see Steve Peters, Dr. Steve Peters, yes. who wrote The Chimp Paradox, Chimp Paradox, which I know really works for some people, really doesn't work for other people. For me, it really clarified the way that my brain works. But mm. I um, walked into the room and I was struggling a bit at the time. And he said to me, now, don't talk to me about confidence. And I was like... I really, really would like to room feeling really confident in myself. Um, and he was like, no, I won't talk about it. Um, you need to work out where you get your confidence from because confidence is this feeling that waxes and wanes and you can feel great for 300 days leading up, leading up to a race. And then on the day, you know, you you get the squeaky pants and you don't know where it's gone. So you need to work out what makes you feel um feel confident and unpick it and that's when I looked over back over all my performances and I realized that actually when I reminded myself of my belief in myself just fundamental bottom line belief and trust trust in the people around me trust in the plan that I've put together that was when I felt calm mm. yeah. and then when I felt calm that was when I could just execute you know just myself bring myself to the day um, and I think there were various um just various moments like that and actually that period of time in 2014 when I was ill and injured I was able to sort of press pause on everything and I mean I was lying on my back just swapping a bag of frozen peas for a water bottle for about <laughs> three weeks so I had a lot of time to think but it gave me that opportunity to reflect and to really unpick things and say okay so what does work and what have been my best performances and I think that was when I, when I slowed stuff down, I then sort of built my own language in my head to actually understand sort of myself and, and also understand my impact on others because mm. I could then see, well, not only is this almost poisoning myself, this, this drive, um, but also, you know, I feel pretty isolated right now. Like I'm, I'm outside of the team and I don't feel like I've got a team around me. Well, why is that? Is that because you've alienated your teammates? You know, do you really have genuine bonds with your teammates? Do you want genuine bonds with your teammates? Yes. Right. Okay. Well, you need to fix some stuff that's wrong. But mm. I think only having the the bandwidth and the actual time to do that, is that possible? Yeah. And this type period we're in right now, what an interesting period for, for athletes that are going into tokyo 2021 and the reflection that that must have happened like it's quite it's quite interesting i spoke to my my brother about his business that he's running and and the pandemic threw many challenges towards him and very real challenges and fears and he managed to to find a way to to navigate it and and come out pretty well um but one of the things he said was the time to stop and reflect on what was going wrong in the business and what was going well and where he was winning and losing and and how he's actually managed to change the model and I think that's just a really nice analogy for probably what athletes have been able to do over this time you hope obviously everyone's going to be individual and dealing with it in different ways mm -hmm. but you hope that there's been a period where there's some time to reflect and figure out right if I want to 
achieve the goals that I'm trying to set for myself? That how am I am I going about it in the right way? Have I been burning myself out? Do I suddenly feel freer in my mind now? What whatever's going on? Is there what are your predictions for for Tokyo 2021? Do you reckon? Yeah, well, I think number one, I just can't imagine how challenging it must have been to be an athlete during this time. So just amazing for the, for the ones that make it, and there there will be ones that went went through this past year and at this point are not making selection so that mm. you know they don't even get the carrot at the end um so but one thing i do notice is that for some athletes you know competing in an environment when there aren't so many spectators number one and number two it feels a little bit like there's a level playing field because no one really knows what restrictions you know you've been under in your own country mm. That is incredibly freeing. Like I, speaking as an intro, one number one an introvert, and number two, I sort of see myself as quite sensitive. Like if there's too much going on, I get like really quickly overwhelmed. I like things really simple, really calm, really quiet. The same every day, you know, like really boring. But then I know I can just like just deliver whatever I've, whatever I've decided to deliver. Yeah. Um, and I think we do see this already. You know, you can see some footballers some you know athletes and other sport tennis players who are producing astounding performances seemingly from nowhere but remember if it doesn't suit you to walk into a stadium of thousands of people and to perform in that environment then yeah this is like an absolutely wonderful opportunity so i think we'll see some what is perceived as surprising performances but um I think that's just a wonderful opportunity for those that actually would rather there weren't loads of crowds looking at, you know, some people do it for the crowds and they do that to give them energy. But for some people, it's about producing a performance from within themselves and the opportunity to do that without yeah. a whole load of other stuff going on. You know, I, I, I'm almost jealous that I didn't get that chance. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that like even watching something like UFC, there's been chat around, the fighters that are going into those cages, some are really succeeding well when they probably wouldn't if there were whether it was a crowd because they're like, right, I can zone in even more. But when there's a crowd, that's the distraction. So again, it's just going to play out. However it'll play out, it will play out and will be an interesting learner. Um, you met, you touched on your book as well. And I'd like to just spend a moment on that. And so from my understanding, it's the lessons that you've learned from your your term without giving it all away uh, yeah. what can people expect from there what are some areas that you touch on in in the book yeah so it's called learnings from five olympic games so exactly what it is mm. um and i felt i just felt like i had so much of value in my head i needed to get it out because i was carrying it around and i was like oh my head it's just too like it's going to explode and surely this is a value to some somebody out there but, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. The, the main aim, number one, was to get it out of my head so I stopped carrying it around. And number two, actually, just to produce something as a gift to a few coaches, physios, doctors, some friends and family who really helped me get over the line in that last couple of years mm. and to articulate it and say, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for what you helped me learn and look what, like, it all came out as. And, um, you know, Amazingly, like it, it, it has a, lots of people have said, "Oh, this is actually really useful." And so I've made I've made it available. Um, but essentially, you know, it's available through my website, and we can sort of touch yep. on that later. But the point is that yeah. So in 2014, when I made this new vow, I also said to myself, 
number one, I don't have to be in the boat, but I want to pass on as many learnings as I can to everyone so that they have the opportunity to have a great experience at the Olympics. Um, and number two, I feel like I've been trying to sort of sort of pass on my learnings in a way that hasn't worked up until now. But how can I accumulate all of everything that I've learned from, from at that point, four previous games, multiple world titles and world records and pass it on a, in a constructive way. So it's, it's not a recipe book. It's a notebook of what I learned and some people that always resonate with some people, but for some people they might think, oh, actually, I think differently. But that's brilliant because at least you're starting the conversation. So if you talk to your coach and you say, you know, I, you know, actually, I don't, you know, I, I don't feel nervous. Well, great. Mm -hmm. At least you're having a conversation about your nerves and all the way that I've described about how I felt nervous and how I dealt with it. Um, so I, it was a it was a constant wrangle to balance the sort of human stories and really how I felt emotionally as well as the kind of practical stuff mm. but I've sort of knitted them together so it's not a big tome blow by blow through my account my life um and I'll just show you um so this is this is it is only like a little thing so it's like a notebook people say yeah. it's like stumbling across an Olympian's notebook um but it's got loads of um graphics and photos just to help yeah right yeah bring stuff to life um really simple it's like it's intense and it requires a bit of re-reading because re, re i just tried to like distill everything that i'd learn into something that is like really easily readable so it's a bit of bit of the emotional bit of the pragmatic lots of stories but that's nice the fact that it's it's yeah. that size that you can come back to i'm a big believer in having books and and i've started doing this and i, and I have probably about five or six books on the go at once anyway so i'm constantly i don't i'm not a big believer in in uh starting a book and finishing it straight away if you've got something that has value and you can either flick through it to get to the value you you're seeking within it and especially if it's something like that that's or looks like a like you said a diary everyone wants to know yeah. what's in someone's diary sort of thing so uh that's yeah. really nice that people can go through there was there a, a biggest learner that probably stood out the most whether it's from the process of writing the book or was it or throughout your career that you feel has stood out the most um yeah when you find the right people to work with it's amazing so after a few so i had all of i had everything that i wanted to say in this um when i crossed the line in rio and i sort of i'd written i wrote, wrote it all down i had all the chapters everything was really clear but it doesn't look like it looks now right and I thought I've got to do it all on my own because, you know, I should, I'm a capable person. I should be able to do this on my, on my own. And then I realized, no, because I'm not like, you know, so I don't have all those skills. And so I found a digital illustrator. I found a print, amazing, wonderful printer down in Lostwithiel in Cornwall. And when I found these people, it was, it has been such a joy to work with them. Mm. And it's the same in sport. You know, when I tried to do it all on my own and I thought it was all about me, I got really stressed and frustrated and you know it just actually wasn't that rewarding when I found the right people to work with and I was in these teams of people awesome yeah so it's exactly the same thing when you find the right people and you work together what you create together that is the reward look if there's if there's half the amount of stuff that's come out in this conversation in the book then people are in for a treat so uh, look where's the best people for uh, where's the best place for people to find you? Uh, just 
go your hardest in in okay. letting people get in touch with you right well so it's, it's super simple because i've self-published and amazon um take loads of money for <laughs> remember this um if you buy anything on amazon it is only available through my website right and that is www.francishorton.co.uk and i'm francis with an e so yeah. www.francishorton.co.uk um so the book's available there um i post worldwide and I occasionally get myself on Instagram and Twitter, really, if there's an update about the book. And actually, there's a second edition coming out, which is so current sort of gift, original gift edition is £25. Mm. And I realise that's a barrier for, for many people. A second edition, we've just this week been with my printer and I, we've just worked out how we can keep the really nice feel of the book. Um but not on the bespoke paper that I had really high-end recycled paper I did the original gift on. Mm. Um, so this, it's not on the website yet, but will be, um, and that will be $12.99, so a lot, a lot less. Um, and updates will be Instagram, Twitter, and I, I'm at Horton Francis, so H-O-U-G-H-T-O-N and Francis, but don't don't hold your breath. On all, all the links will be in the show notes for this, so uh, people can go there to find it. Look, Francis, this has been amazing like some of the stuff that's come up was was incredible it's been brilliant to catch up with you again it's been to to speak to you and and yeah this this conversation blow me away oh yeah and so, you so nice really really nice really nice um to talk about it all yeah, so thank, thank you, you thank you for coming on thanks for listening to the raising your game podcast you can find out more at lewishatchet.com or head to instagram at lewishatchet or even head over to youtube if you found this podcast useful, then please do feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Simply head to Apple Podcasts, find the show, scroll all the way to the bottom, leave your review, and it really does help. Anyway, I will see you next time.